the days are getting longer. I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, it's brighter outside than it's been for some time, so uh, there is hope. Uh, <laughs> I think it always makes it slightly easier making it to Burning Man when you, when you can see where you're going uh, for a start. But welcome uh, as we continue our series uh, this morning, um, and I'll introduce our, our speaker in a moment, uh, our series uh, called Defending the Faith. Um, just to say, in two weeks' time, uh, we have Roger Simpson coming to speak uh, to us. Now, a slightly different thing we've been doing this term, uh, we're trialing, is um, every so often having an evangelist come in and speak to us, which gives us the opportunity to invite friends, colleagues, neighbors, housemates, whatever it might be, uh, to come and hear the gospel, just put in a really powerful and clear way. So some of you might have been here a few weeks ago when we had Rico Tice. Uh, I think that event went well. We lay on bacon rolls. I couldn't actually be here. I was in Jamaica. Uh, apologies. Uh, <laughs> but um, fantastic opportunities uh, to get on the front foot with mission and do actually what we're about here at Burning Man, which is seek to reach other men with the gospel of Jesus. We're constantly reading about these heroes of the faith in the scriptures who uh, laid the foundation and really did uh, what was needed for us to be here today. And it's our turn now. We have the baton and uh, are called to run with it. So we're trialing having these evangelistic events. And in two weeks' time, we've got another opportunity. So um, this time uh, in two weeks, do be inviting friends. I'm going to do an, a flyer. I'll make it available uh, over email to you. Simply forward it on to a friend, a colleague. Uh, let them know what the score is. There'll be coffee, um, bacon, uh, butties, that kind of thing. Uh, and they'll hear a really compelling uh, gospel presentation, gospel preach. So really good opportunity to get friends, colleagues along to that with Roger Simpson. Oh, I didn't, I didn't really say much about him. Roger is the Archbishop's Evangelist for the Northern Province. Didn't realize we had provinces. But uh, he was the vicar of St. Michael the Belfry in York uh, for a number of years, 11 years. Uh, before going on to do that, he's helped with student missions um, around the country uh, for years and years. Uh, he's an incredible storyteller and a very compelling speaker. So uh, let's not miss this opportunity uh, to get friends, um, loved ones along to hear him in two weeks' time. Thrilled this morning that our speaker is David Jackman. I think David Jackman is probably the oldest friend. I mean, not, he's the longest-serving friend of uh, Burning Man. When we set up um, about three years ago now uh, and wanted a mini-series, three-part series, to sort of model what Burning Man would be about, um, and we thought, who would be best um, placed to do that? Uh, it was David who came in and did a small three-part series on the book of Ephesians. And uh, we've been thrilled to have him back uh, almost every term since. Um, so, David, thank you for your friendship, uh, your ongoing support. David uh, is a former president of the Proclamation Trust, um, a trust committed to seeing uh, the gospel proclaimed uh, around the uh, nation and the world. He's an author of many books, uh, highly in demand, so we're delighted uh, we can have him this morning. Would you please give him a warm welcome as he comes to speak to us? Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for your welcome. It's always a joy to come, at least when we get here. Getting up is not always the joy, but it's great that you did it and uh, that we can be together this morning. <clears throat> Uh, we're going to look at uh, a passage from the Acts of the Apostles today uh, as we follow up this series on uh, defending the faith, communicating the gospel, and uh, it's Paul in Athens, which you'll find in the Bibles on page 1113, 
and it's Acts chapter 17, and in a few moments we're going to read from verse 16 uh, through that unit. Um, But before we read the passage, um, let me just pray for us, and then uh, one or two words of introduction. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of being together this morning. Thank you for a Bible in a language that we can understand. Thank you for freedom to read it and share it together. Thank you for, for your spirit who inspired it and who's with us this morning to illuminate our understanding. And we pray that he will be our teacher, that your word will be our guide, and that you will equip us to serve you not only today but in all the coming days in ways that will defend the faith and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, now, the book of Acts is an amazing tool. It's uh, descriptive of the unique acts of the Holy Spirit through Christ's commissioned apostles. I say descriptive because sometimes people want to make it prescriptive and say that everything that happened in Acts ought to be done today. But, of course, the context is different. The sorts of people that we're dealing with have the same basic human problems and issues but we live in a very different context from the first century world. What we need to do with a book like this is to learn its principles and then seek to apply them into our contemporary context, even though the circumstances might be very different. So we've got in this book a unique window on how the apostles fulfilled the great commission that Jesus gave them just before he ascended to heaven, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the peoples. And um, not only the apostles, but the book contains other stories about Philip the deacon and the Ethiopian chancellor that he evangelized in the desert while he was traveling home to Ethiopia in his chariot. We have Stephen the martyr and the great speech that he gave defending the faith uh, before his own execution. And several major recorded speeches uh, by the apostles. Uh, And we're going to look at one of them this morning. The other two major ones are Acts 2, where Peter on the day of Pentecost proclaims to the Jews and the proselytes who come to worship in Jerusalem that Christ is the Messiah. And then in Acts 13, there's another big speech, this time by Paul in Antioch, uh, again to Jews and Gentiles who are worshiping God and God-fearers, firmly rooted in the Old Testament story. And he ends that speech by saying, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, his children, by raising up Jesus. So clearly at the heart of their proclamation is Jesus, the Christ, the Lord, crucified and risen. Now in Acts 17, we come to a very different audience. We're with the pagan philosophers of Athens. Uh, It's the same message, Jesus and the resurrection but a very different approach because the people he's talking to in our passage have no Old Testament knowledge at all, no real knowledge of the God of Israel. He teaches them the same content of the same gospel, but with no Old Testament quotations. Uh, He quotes their own cultural context, relates what God has done in Christ directly to the issues and concerns that preoccupied his hearers, And so he has a different route in with the gospel. But interestingly, the vocabulary that's used about the apostles preaching the good news is very consistent all the way through the book of Acts and very instructive 
whatever the differing contacts and contexts might be. So I thought just for a couple of minutes, let me take you to one or two surrounding passages, and then we'll zoom in on our Athens passage. If you've got the Bible open there at chapter 17, just have a look at verses 2 through 4, where the description of his ministry in another city, Thessalonica, is given to us. It says in verse 2 that he went into the synagogue for three Sabbath days. Now, notice the verbs. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Of course, he's talking to Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue. So he's reasoning and using the scriptures there. Then the next verse says, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said, and some of the Jews were persuaded. It's interesting to put those verbs together, isn't it? What's he doing? He's reasoning, he's explaining and proving, and that is proclaiming. And then he says, and then it says, and they were persuaded. That's what he's working for. Uh, if you flip over the page to chapter 18, he's in Corinth, another great Greek city. And at verse 4, we're told, 18.4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's appealing to their thinking. He's addressing their minds, because he's not stopping there. He's addressing their hearts, their souls, their lives. But he begins with this reasoning and persuading ministry. And it says also in verse 5 that uh, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews. So proclaiming and giving personal witness. Those are the two things that he's doing in Corinth that forms the church there. And just the third example, in chapter 19, he gets to Ephesus, which, of course, is in Asia Minor, in Turkey. And here, in a different context again, he's doing the same sort of thing, whoever he's dealing with. So in chapter 19, verse 8, he starts in the synagogue. He always starts with the Jews. He speaks boldly, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And then there's the usual fracas, and some are very um, opposed to what Paul says, and he decides to leave the synagogue. And in the middle of verse 9, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Now, those daily discussions obviously started with the disciples. They were like this, I suppose, this sort of context. Lecture Hall of Tyrannus would be a neutral um, environment, probably at lunchtime when he wouldn't be doing his lecturing, when the siesta would be on. Paul uses this central location to discuss, and all sorts of people listen in, and the word of the Lord goes through the whole province of Asia, because Ephesus is the capital city, and it just spreads out from there into places like Colossae and Laodicea. And many churches were founded during that two-year ministry in Ephesus. Always there's opposition, sometimes it's physical violence, but always there is fruit, and always it's the same methodology. Reasoning, persuading, convincing, testifying. So with that background, let's come now to Acts chapter 17 and read our passage. It's at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, that word again, 
with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. See, he doesn't just do it in the synagogue, it's reasoning in the marketplace too, day by day, with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are, uh, that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead." When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So here is Paul then. What are his criteria? What are his convictions? As you look at the passage, you can see that he recognizes that everybody has a doctrine of God, even if that God is non-existent. Atheism is a doctrine of God. He isn't there. Or if it's pluralistic, as it was in Athens, there are many, many gods. Paul's basic approach is built upon the idea that because every human being is made in the image of God, Although that image is defaced, it is not eradicated. So you are never communicating into a vacuum. Each individual is, well, I think the illustration that gets it for me is a bit like a, a spiritual radio receiver. And we never know when the Holy Spirit will tune someone in to God's wavelength and they will begin to receive the message of truth and life. 
You're, you're not communicating into a vacuum. They're made in the image of God. They are made for God. We are all made for God. And our doctrine of God, of course, shapes our worldview and dictates our priorities and values, our decisions, our hopes and our fears. But everybody has that common um, God-shaped blank in their lives. And so as Paul begins to proclaim Jesus and the resurrection to them, that is his basic conviction. That's where he is coming from. And the opening paragraph, going back now to our text, gives us a thumbnail sketch of what life in Athens, discovered by Paul on this visit, looked like. Uh, The big thing that Luke tells us is that it was a city of uh, ubiquitous idolatry. Actually, the translation is it was a city that was submerged in idols. And... uh, As Paul travels around, he's not just an interested tourist. He is a distressed monotheist. He believes that there is one God, the creator of all things. And the language that Luke uses is that he's unsettled, he's outraged, he's deeply moved by what he sees, the ignorance of these multiple altars to all sorts of fictional gods. Now, the marketplace, the agora, is the place where people met and exchanged their ideas, particularly in Athens. It's the pulse of the city. So he heads there in order to be able to persuade and to proclaim Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, Verse 21 tells us what it was like. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, it was, of course, the great intellectual center of Greece, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? So this is the city of Aristotle and Socrates, and the tradition lives on, and it has a vibrant intellectual life, a major influence uh, in terms of Greek philosophy, and particularly in terms of the schools of philosophy that vied for prominence in Athens, particularly the Epicureans, and the Stoics, who are mentioned there in uh, verse 18. To them, Paul seemed to be, well, they describe him as a babbler. Again, the literal translation is a gutter sparrow, a seed picker, some insignificant little bird in the, in the gutter. But he's interesting in the sense that he's new. These are strange ideas. It's new teaching, and we all love to hear something new, and it'll be fun to have him up and find out what he's babbling about. It's not a great start for Paul in many ways. It's not, dear Paul, would you please come and address the philosophical forum? It's, here is someone who, well, he's different. Let's see what he's got to say. What we just need to know, because it's very important the way in which Paul angles his gospel presentation, is that the Epicureans and the Stoics had very different views of life. The Epicureans were critical of popular religion and especially of all these shrines and altars. They were the critics of that emptiness. For them, life was about securing happiness, maximizing pleasure. Again, it sounds kind of familiar. And as far as they were concerned, the gods were remote and disinterested. They had no fear of supernatural intervention. All that stuff about Jove and his lightning bolt, the Epicureans just rejected all that. It's childish nonsense. 
They had no belief in the afterlife. They had no sense of consequences of anything that happened in this life. You're just here for this short life. Make the best of it. Enjoy it to the max. The Stoics, on the other hand, recognized the divine was the source of life. So they are much more religious. Um, There was one human race in their thinking, and the purpose of life was to live in harmony with the logos, that is, the principle of unity that governs the whole world. And for this to happen, then you need to be enlightened, and you need your reason to be in the driving seat of your life, and you need to live by strong ethical principles as a result. Now, you can see both reflected and targeted in Paul's speech. I think it's fascinating the way in which he takes those ingredients and uses them in his presentation. So, as with any good orator, he begins by connecting with his hearers. And so, verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's not making a judgment on that initially. He's just commenting on what he's observed in their city as a visitor. As I walked around, verse 23, and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he's saying it's praiseworthy that you have a reverence for the divine. I'm not an atheist, Paul is saying, and I see that as a city you're not atheistic, but... This unknown God is what intrigued me. You have so many altars, and yet you've also got one to a God that you don't know, presumably because they didn't want to leave any gods out and incur their wrath. So his purpose, then, is to reveal the identity of this unknown God. It's a brilliant stroke right at the beginning. Take something from their culture, and he says to them, now I'm going to declare this to you. Quite fearless, the end of verse 20. Uh, where is it, 23, Uh, now the God that you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim. So sit up, ears back, I'm going to tell you about this. Now having made that connection then, he begins to correct their misconceptions. And the speech is brilliant because you may have noticed as we read that there are three major negatives And he uses the negatives to teach the positives. This is his methodology. So if you look at the three major negatives, let's just look down the verses. First of all, in verse 24, the God who made the world does not live in temples. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands. And then verse 27, is it? Yes, he is not far from each one of us. So he doesn't live in temples, he isn't served by hands, he isn't far away. Now, why does he say those three things? Well, because what he's doing is deconstructing Athenian thinking and lifestyle. The Epicureans may not have much time for God. Well, he's going to declare that there is a God who made everything. But the Stoics certainly had a lot of time in thinking about the divine, and they were really the group that generated, I guess, all these idols around the city and all this worship. And so what he is going to do is to deconstruct their worldview in order to build into it the right view, the divinely revealed view, which is thoroughly scriptural, though he never, never quotes the Old Testament. 
So what he's doing is taking Old Testament revelation, packaging it in their cultural context, and communicating it to them in ways that undermine their presuppositions. There must be lessons for us in that, mustn't there? So God the creator, he begins with. He's sovereign over the world and everything that he's made. And because he is the maker of all things and all nations, he does not live in temples built by human hands. That's the first thing that he says. So why are there all these temples and idol shrines when the real God can't be confined within a building that human beings have made? He can't be contained within our frameworks. Because, and here's the positive, You've built temples for your God to live in, your gods to live in. But the real God built the world for you to live in. So the real God is much greater than your mind. And these temples are idolatrous. They demean him because you think you can build a little shrine and go and worship your little sort of pocket God. But the real God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need temples built by human hands. Second point, verse 25, and he's not served by human hands. So there is a relationship between this God and humanity, but he's not to be understood in human terms. It was George Bernard Shaw, wasn't it, who said, God made man in his image, and man has returned the compliment. We've recreated God in our image. But he doesn't need our devotion. He doesn't need our offerings. Because, well, we are totally dependent on him. Look at verse 25 again. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He's the God who sustains you day by day. So when you turn up at your little idol shrine with your offering of food to sustain the God... What a nonsense that is. What sort of God would need that? This God gives you life and breath and everything. And notice the inclusiveness of this in the next verse. From one man he made every nation of men, including you Athenians, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You see, God is in control of the whole thing. He's working out his purpose in the world. He's the God of history, and he's the God of geography. He determines what happens and where people live. He's the sovereign God. He made it all, the creator God. He's blowing their mind about God because their vision of God is so small, and the gods that they worship are so inadequate. And, of course, they're just the product of human thinking anyway. And then the third negative, verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us, from each one of us. So he moves from the existence of God as the only creator to the assertion of his purpose for humanity. He is involved. He is not remote. The philosophers often thought he was if he existed or the gods that they worshipped weren't really involved with them. No, he says, this God who made you, made you so that you might seek for him and perhaps reach out and find him. Reminds us that this world is full of people 
with unformed and unclear religious feelings and aspirations. And that is God's doing. They are made in his image. They need, they long to find him, though they don't know what it is they want. And it's because we are made in the image of God that there is that connection, you see. That radio receiver can be turned on at any moment. And it's by no means doomed to be unsatisfied, this desire for God in ignorance or endless speculation. No, he says, he is not far from any one of us. And even your poets, and he quotes one of the Stoic poets called Erastus, even one of your poets says, we are his offspring. So, again, you see, he undermines the common idea. Do you, do you remember all those programs? Well, we still have them sometimes, BBC Two and Channel Four, about other religions, and particularly mystical religions of the East, and this long quest that people have to make to somehow reach out towards the infinite. And Paul says that's a fiction. He isn't far from any one of us. Every day you're dependent upon God for your very life. He's not hiding at the end of a long quest. The problem is that the search has ended in idolatry, that you haven't really wanted to find this God. And uh, he doesn't accuse them of that, but the implication is you've ducked out of the God who is nearby and created alternative gods of your own because they are much more um, amenable to your desires and your instructions. So what he's doing then is undermining the presuppositions. And when we break in a couple of minutes for our little discussion before we pray together, I'd love us to think about what the implications are of that methodology for us. What are the presuppositions that we come up against? How can we undermine those with God's help? How can, and use them to teach the positives. Because you see, he doesn't just, he's not just destructive. He's removing the brushwood from the door so that the door can open. And he's going to teach them the positive truth. In fact, he does it all the way through of who God is and of his power and his sustaining grace towards humanity, the fact that he's there to be found, that he's not far from us because we are made in his image. And then he concludes it with 29 and to 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think. Notice how, he, again, he takes their quote and he builds on it. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. You see, there's the summary of it all. You've created God in your image. Actually, he created you in his image, and he is such a God of such immense power and such uh, glorious grace and mercy that you could never confine him or even express him in an image made by man's design and skill. And in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Interesting word, isn't it? Ignorance. We prefer the Greek equivalent, which is agnosticism. Uh, people often say, oh, I'm an agnostic. Very fashionable intellectual position. Uh, you should say, okay, well, let's tr translate it into Latin. What you mean is you're ignorant. Uh, well, perhaps we shouldn't say it quite like that, but, you know, that's what people are saying. I'm ignorant. I don't know. Okay, says Paul. Well, God has overlooked that in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people. Even Athenian philosophers who have no knowledge of the Old Testament. 
Why does he command everyone everywhere to repent? Because he's the creator of everyone, because he's the judge of everyone. And he has set a day, 31, when he will judge the world with justice. And the agent of that judgment will be, and here comes the climax, the man he has appointed. Not named here, though doubtless he did go on to name him, but Luke just gives us the outline notes. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they said that uh, Paul was um, preaching foreign gods, uh, and it says by Luke, Luke tells us that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, the commentators suggest that likely attitude of the Athenians was that these were two gods, Jesus and Anastasis, which is the resurrection, feminine in Greek, and therefore Jesus was the male god and Anastasis was the feminine consort. That's probably what they thought at the beginning. But now he's talking about a physical resurrection from the dead, which proves that the man who will be the judge of everyone, the agent of the one true creator God, is indeed his son, is indeed his, um, the demonstration of his reality, his power. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, well, you get the results that we always get, don't you? Some sneered, some said, hmm, interesting. I'd like to hear you again, but look, Some became followers of Paul and believed. I think that implies that they spent more time with Paul, that he took it further, um, that they were willing. You know, all of this is a process, isn't it? Bringing and encouraging people to faith. You can't do it all overnight. Takes time. Got to be committed to it. And they became followers of Paul. And as he stayed in Athens for a while, he took that little group and instructed them so that they came to faith And you have the embryonic church there, Dionysius and Damaris and a number of others. Well, people say it wasn't a great success story in Athens, was it? But if I went to speak at a senior common room in one of our major universities to all the philosophy dons and a few believed, I would regard that as a very great success myself. I would think that's an amazing thing to have happened. So let's not write it off. It's different. He's a long way back. It's our sort of situation. But this is how he defended the faith and how he proclaimed the gospel, Jesus and the resurrection. So let's in our groups, as it's 20 to 8, let's have a few minutes just to buzz around on that to discuss what are the implications for us? How, if we follow this methodology, can we um, begin to demonstrate the, the truth of the gospel within our personal conversations and our presentations and proclamations of God's truth? Let's do that just for a few minutes, then I'll make one or two comments about it before we pray in small groups for the last uh, 10 minutes. Thanks. Well, can I uh, interrupt our conversations, just pull us back together for a couple of minutes before we pray. Just a few thoughts that occurred to me. Doubtless you've had others and and these as well perhaps. But some of the things that I think are good implications for us in our contemporary context. Firstly, like Paul, let's take the time to observe and to listen. I think sometimes as Christians we go charging in assuming that we know where everybody is. But, um, you know, uh, we don't. So let's find out where people are, their worldview, their beliefs. Take time to observe and to listen 
And it was because of that that he had this platform uh, by which he could engage the Athenian philosophers. Then what I think he was doing majorly was pushing their presuppositions to the conclusion. See, if they were right about the shrines and the offerings and God being remote, um, then the conclusion of that is that you can't really know God and there is no way in which your life can be affected by him at any deep level. So he pushes their presuppositions to the conclusion of that. He shows them how inadequate their grounds for belief and behavior really are. And I think in doing that, sometimes we need to introduce the concept of God to people as a sort of mental exercise. So I would sometimes say to people, well, let's just imagine for one moment, if you will, that there is a creator who made everything, that there is one supreme God. How would that work out? It's not so unimaginable because we're all made in God's image, though the person you're talking to may not know that and certainly doesn't believe it. But if there is a creator, then what would the implications of this be? And that points us on to the unique historicity of Jesus and what do you make of him. And I'm sure that's the the fulcrum in this sort of um, discussion that we're likely to be involved in, that the God who made everything uh, intervened in our world in this unique historical person uh, who cannot be denied. I mean, the existence of Jesus is not questioned by anybody uh, of any sort of um, historical credibility. All the historians would say the evidence for Jesus Christ is overwhelming. But what do you make of him? Who is this Jesus? And what Paul is working towards is what he describes in verse 30 as repentance. He commands everyone everywhere to repent. And I tend to think of that exclusively in moral terms. But actually, I've been helped recently looking up the sort of origins of the word metanoia. It means change of mind. And I think the moral repentance comes as a result of a change of thinking. Um, And it's when we begin to think the God way, that there is one God, that he did make us, that our lives will stand before his judgment It's at that point when we see Jesus and the resurrection as the answer to our desperate need. That change of mind is what leads to the moral repentance and the faith in Jesus that is saving faith. So don't define repent too narrowly there. It's changing your thinking, a change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle. And the change of lifestyle comes because the mind is convinced This is the Holy Spirit's work, of course, but we're the channels that he wants to use. The mind is convinced about the truth uh, of Christ and the resurrection. And then lastly, I think, be prepared to take time and to use a variety of means. It doesn't happen overnight, but as we pray for people and as we ask for opportunities to be able to talk to them, God arranges those appointments. And some will sneer, But some will say, yeah, I'd like to talk some more. And gradually, there may be a Dionysius or a Damaris who appears. That's what we want to pray for in our own witnessing context. So let's pray for one another in the time that remains. I've got just just under 10 minutes. And particularly, perhaps, pray for folk in our office or our working place, um, people known to us, maybe our neighbors, friends, family. And let's ask God to give us this sort of biblical wisdom and courage. I'm challenged that he was speaking boldly wherever he went, 
So he seized the opportunities. And he had this opportunity with these key people. The Areopagus was the great forum of Athens that approved of all the ideas that were given credence in the city. It was the, the center of the whole life of the city. He had this great opportunity because he was babbling in the marketplace day by day. Uh, and doing that opened up the door for him to have this presentation of the gospel. So let's pray for opportunities like that for one another as we seek to witness to Christ in our Athens. Thanks. Let's pray together.